0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Grab your Bible with me real quick. Go to the book of Psalms if you have a Bible. Psalm 57. Those of you who are part of our community, you know that we give out message cards uh, each and every week. Today would be different. Um, do want to let you know that uh, you can access the same thing that would be on the message card on the Uversion app. If you would prefer to do that, you can click your Uversion app on your phone right there and click on events. And right under events, if your location services is turned on, you should obviously see Dwelling Place Church come up first, all right? And you can see all the scriptures in front of you. And for those who you have a dumb phone, not a smartphone, Uh, I got you taken care of too, all right? It'll come on the screens behind me and in front of you. Psalm 57, I want to let you know, uh, beginning next Sunday, everybody say next Sunday. We're going to be starting, and Pastor Chad will talk in great detail, but I want to let you know as you need to prepare, a seven-day fast. Now, historically, if you've been a part of a church that's done a 21-day fast or began the year in a seven-day fast, A lot of times what we do is we set that as a standard of, like Ezra, the Bible said he called a corporate fast, and he did so to inquire of the Lord his direction for this new season. And this year, we're not going to encourage people to do a seven-day Daniel fast like we do a 21-day Daniel fast. We're actually encouraging people this year to do liquid fast. And we know and understand that's not a a, a capability for all people due to medication and and some people that are working on roofs and they pour concrete and they do very physical labor understand uh, very keenly, I understand that. But if you've never done a seven-day liquid fast or even for that matter a three-day liquid fast that turns into a partial fast for the other four days, I want to encourage you to really think, I want to encourage you to really contemplate, to pray this week, Uh, we're going to seek the Lord with great fervor, amen? And the Bible tells us very clearly, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, when you fast, when you give. Not if you pray, if you fast, if you give, but when you pray, when you give, when you fast. And so we're going to be kicking that off next Sunday. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, I will be giving information all week long to prepare for that. Not only physiological stuff in terms of preparing for a fast. For those who choose to do a Daniel fast, you'll see that. Uh, you know, no meats, no sweets, no bread. Of course, that includes, you know, you're not... You know, cheating and I don't know, getting as much other types of uh, bread that you desire. You know, people get really creative on a Daniel fast. You know, they get really, really, it's like a liquid fast. Does that mean as long as I don't chew it with my teeth, can I eat it? So I can eat chocolate pudding, right, Pastor Craig, and you just swallow it whole, right? As long as you don't move your teeth, you know, people come up with some creative things. But you can follow us on social media. And again, we're going to be calling a corporate fast beginning next Sunday. And how awesome is this? That week, not only do we launch back growth phases that Thursday night, but the following night, which is Friday night, the 13th, we have all-night prayer, and so we're going to be on day five of a seven-day fast with all-night prayer. I'm just believing God. It's, it's going to be an amazing, amazing moments together as a community, and so I want to encourage you in that as you prepare. Psalm 57, I want to begin and read our text today. I want to see in our time together of how an ancient collection of songs, which is the Psalms engages perhaps one of the most pressing questions of our day. Say, Craig, what series does this fall under? Well, it really doesn't. It's a one-off message. That's how it fell this year. The question I want us to ask and contemplate for a few moments is, does God really have a purpose for my life? Does God really have a purpose Man, it's so good to see Stephanie Wilson. So good to see you, Stephanie. I just saw you, and I was saying that. You caught all of my attention. It's so good to have Stephanie Wilson, who's all the way from uh, West Virginia. She's in West Virginia right now. And Kelsey, y'all let Stephanie and Kelsey know how much we appreciate them being a part. So good. So good to see you, Stephanie. Psalm 57, all right? Does God really have a, a purpose for my life? I want you to think about that question uh, very personally, because sometimes when we ask that question, I think we ask it in a, greater sense. Does God have a purpose for the world, some would say? Don't ask that today. Ask, does God have a purpose for you, specifically for your life? And if he has a purpose for your life, how can you know what it is? How do you figure it out, if you will? See, the reality is that few things in life are as important as finding your purpose. When you understand something about purpose and you understand your purpose... You can put up with all kinds of inconvenience and pain because of it. Your ability to put up and endure pain is in direct relationship to your perception of the purpose of the pain. You can, in pursuit of the purpose of God, endure all kinds of conflict. For example, let me give you an example. Let's say your boss asks you to come in one Saturday morning, and he asks you to open up a stack of 10,000 envelopes, and he wanted you to sort through all the contents of 10,000 envelopes. You get no overtime pay. He tells you you get no more extra money. It's just weekend work. I want you to open up with your hands 10,000 envelopes. No overtime pay. Well, you would be complaining by about envelope 100 and you would be resentful. That would feel like the worst weekend ever. What do you think I am? Or who do you think I am? But if he told you, perhaps, that in one of those letters was a $100,000 bonus check for you, and when you found it, you could go cash it. Now, it becomes an adventure. Now, all of a sudden, you're having fun opening up the 100,000 envelopes. Now, you're having a, you look like Willy Wonka land, right? You're trying to find the golden ticket in the chocolate bar. I mean, it turns into an adventure. Why? Same tedious job, the difference is in your perception of purpose, The same tedious job you go through Monday through Friday, the difference is your perception of its purpose. We've got to understand purpose. Or how about this? Try being a doctor and tell a woman that she's got a condition, a very special condition, that's going to make her waistline grow 10 inches, and she's going to gain 45 pounds over the next few months. She'll like you, punch you in the face. Yet my wife has heard that three times from a doctor, and she rejoiced with tears every time she heard it because that meant she was pregnant. Same news, same condition, same everything is conditionally the exact same. The difference is in the perception of purpose. When knowing that God has a purpose for you, will transform how you see everything in your life. It transforms what you do with your blessings. It transforms what you do with the resources you have. It transforms how you interpret the pain you're going through. It transforms how you interpret the difficulties you're facing. So the question that we have to answer today is how can you discover that purpose for you? How can you discover that purpose for you? Because it's transformational. Psalm fifty-seven. Psalm 57. Notice the beginning. Do you see the little note at the beginning in your Bible? We call these in Scripture the epitaphs. You won't see it on the screen. That goes straight into the text. But if you're looking at a Bible, you'll see the little epitaph. And it says, if you'll follow me, to the choir master, to the tune of Do Not Destroy. Wow, I didn't know he was the first band member, you know, that enjoyed like hard rock, you know. I didn't realize David and was a part of heavy heavy metal, Metallica, you know, but pretty, pretty amazing nonetheless. He goes on. In other words, this would be like due to the tune of Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, Marley. And then he goes on to say, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, you need to understand that. Before we read the psalm, you've got to understand the context. David wrote this song while he's hiding in a cave. What cave, Craig? The cave of Abdullam in En-Gedi. Literally right off the West Bank there in Israel. David is running from a, a, Saul, a, a king named Saul. I call him Psycho Saul because he flat lost his mind. He was trying to kill him because David had been anointed the future king of Israel. And Saul, the current king of Israel, got very, very nervous. He didn't like that. So he chased David out of the country, and he now has several thousand soldiers that are scouring the countryside looking for him. In fact, This psalm that we're about to read covers 25 years of David's life. It's specific for those who want to go on this afternoon and study your Bible of the text, the narrative text that the psalm covers. You need to read 1 Samuel 18, chapter 18 to 1 Samuel 22. Those five chapters are conclusive in one psalm, Psalm 57. Unless you're a kind of a deep Bible student and you want the whole deal, then read 10 years after that to 2 Samuel chapter 5. But I want to catch you up, obviously, because we're not going to read all of that right now. For those of us who don't understand David, the story of David's life, I want you to ingrain for the moment the principles of God's greater word in your consciousness. David is 12 years old when he's anointed to be king over all Israel. He's anointed in front of all of his brothers by the prophet named Samuel. At that time, there was a king in Israel. His name was Saul. The Bible says Saul was very handsome. At the beginning of his reign, he was successful and chosen by people. Things started to go wrong pretty quickly in his tenure. He began to disobey God, and then he wouldn't repent when he had the opportunity to do so. So the Bible says at one point that God was sorry he even made Saul king of Israel. He wanted to find a man after his own heart. So that's our boy David. Our boy David, the shepherd boy, comes into the story. He flew under the radar from age 12 to the teenage. He kept sheep on the backside of a desert for his father. He was faithful the whole time. He yeah, had David. You remember the story of 1 Samuel 17 where he killed Goliath. He wasn't fitted for the robes of Saul. And he said, No, I'll, I'll take on my own armor. And he picked up five smooth stones. It took one as he sent the one single stone into the forehead of the nine foot nine Goliath. And he hit the ground and cut his head off. And the Philistines fled as far as Gath. And the Israelites overtook them. And you know David's great day. He was a sensation, he was popular. Little girls would come into the streets of Israel singing and fainting when he would come home from battle they were like he was like the, the true Jonas brother he was the brother. he was the man in his day. The Bible records these songs about David. They said the little girls the teenagers on, on Twitter and Snapchat said but that that Saul has killed his thousands but David is tens of thousands. He gave butterflies to all the young women. he was he was really cool dude. Saul eventually becomes so paranoid that David was going to supersede his authority. he decides to kill David. One day, David is playing the harp to take care of the evil spirits in Saul. Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David and misses. Now listen, when your dude, your mentor, throws a spear at you, that can only mean one of two things. Either Saul's losing his mind or David's song was horrible, okay? I tend to think that Saul was losing his mind. One time Saul decides that he will send David into battle and have him killed. Here's how he worked that strategy. Strategy. He said, Hey, David, I want to give you my daughter's hand in marriage if you'll bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. David brings home 200 foreskins. Young children, ask your parents this afternoon. That'd be a great conversation at home. But David keeps on by the hand of God. He keeps moving by the hand of God. He escapes the hand of this wicked king. And eventually, after Saul throws another spear at David, David's like, It's time for a career change. All right? No more heart playing for this psycho. Well, 1 Samuel 22 verse 5 is what most scholars believe is the very moment that David would pen Psalm 57 from the cave of Abdullam. For 25 years, he would be off and on the run trying to get away from Saul, yet knowing that he was anointed but would refuse to take matters in his own hands. In fact, one day he's in the cave and Saul comes in the cave and he begins to relieve himself He because he's number one in the cave. And David's behind him, and he's thinking, well, I'm going to go up, and this is my opportunity. God's put him in front of me. I can slash his neck. I can take care of him here. And he goes and cuts off the edge of his robe and said, you know what? I refuse to take God's deal and God's timing into my own hands. He said, I will touch not the Lord's anointed one. Pretty amazing, amazing story. What I want to do in our time together this morning is I want to look for a few moments at what I believe is so powerful about understanding God's purpose for our lives. Begin with me, Psalm 57, verse one. David cries out from the cave of Abdul, and be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for you in my, for in you my soul takes refuge. Everybody say refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. Key verse, here's our key verse for today. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. I cry out to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send heaven. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame who tramples on me. Selah. Pause and think about it. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are His spears and arrows, whose tongues are His sharp swords. Refrain, verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. In David's lowest moment of life, he only has one request in the whole psalm. The whole psalm is only chalked with one request, and the one request is not, "God vindicate me. God not get me out of the cave, God not take care of my adversary." The one request in the midst of the difficult moment of his life is, "Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all. Of the earth. Verse 7 My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 11 Here it is again the refrain Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Psalm 57 is a pretty remarkable psalm, isn't it? Because in spite of all the things that are going wrong in David's life, in spite of the fact that he's suffering innocently, not one time does God does David ever ask God to change his situation. The only thing he asks throughout the psalm is, God, glorify your name in this situation. God, glorify your glory, your fame in this situation. He never says, Lord, if you would just vindicate my name, I don't deserve this. I, I've just been anointed the king. I've not done anything wrong to Saul. At least God give me some nicer accommodations. This cave is a dump. He never says, hey, Lord, would you give would you give Saul some hemorrhoids so he feels uncomfortable on his horse and has to go home and use preparation H? I mean, he never says that, right? He never says anything like that. He simply says, be exalted, O God. Now, David may want all those things. I know if you've, you were in that situation, you'd probably want all those things but he perceives something bigger going on in the situation. So rather than asking for anything, he prays twice. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In other words, he's saying, God, use this situation to let other people see just how majestic you are. God, use this situation to let other people see just how amazing you are through this situation. And David Church exudes incredible confidence about God answering that prayer. Look with me at your text, verse 2. He says, not a, not a prayer, he says this is a statement of fact. He says, verse 2, I know, everybody say I know. I know God will fulfill his purpose for me. Verse 4, he says, I will lie down to rest in the midst of fiery beasts. Folks, uh, I don't know about you, but when beasts are surrounding your house, that's normally not the ideal time to take a nap. But David says, while the beasts are around me, I'm going to lie down in the midst of it. Why? Because I have your peace. In verse 7, he says, I will rise early in the morning. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Instead of cowering in fear, David is getting a good night's sleep, and he's waking up singing songs of joy in the midst of his difficulty. So what I want to do today, church, is give you three things from this psalm that you can learn about your purpose. Let me encourage you to take notes. I'm sure. By the way, there is a note-taking gate in heaven. You'll get in a lot faster than the rest of your counterparts. I can't prove that somewhere in numbers, which is where preachers always quote when they're making stuff up, so no one ever looks there. <laughs> numbers chapter 11. All right. The note-taking the note-taking gate. Here's number 1. God has a purpose for you, but it's not about you. God has a purpose for you but it's not about you. You can see in this refrain that that David goes back to again and again. He said, God, may you be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Superseding David's desire to be rescued is his prayer for God to be glorified. See, listen, church, the ultimate purpose of your life is not about you. You and I exist very clearly for God's glory. And it's a hard thing for people to get sometimes. But the ultimate center of all that happens on earth is the glory of God. The ultimate center of all that happens in your life is the glory of God. It really is. In fact, why did God create the earth? Why did God create the earth? I'm going to ask some questions and let David answer the questions I ask based off of other texts. Follow with me in a minute. Why did God create the earth? Psalm 19, verse 1. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, God wove creation as a tapestry to declare declare and display his glory. God created the oceans and the mountaintops and the valleys and the molecules and the, the, the atoms. He created all of it to... Show and weave and display his beautiful glory. Folks, sometimes I told somebody the other day, I think we are like flies walking on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, not knowing the majesty that's underneath our feet in this planet we call Earth. We are walking on on the glorious display of God. We really have no idea just how majestic it really is. Isaiah 48, verse 9, Isaiah the prophet declares, For my namesake, God says, for whose namesake? For his own, for his own glory. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. I don't give you my anger for my name's sake. Ezekiel 36 would agree. Ezekiel 36 verse 22 he says thus says the Lord their God it is for the sake of the church's holy name. It is for the sake of my holy name God said that I'm about to act. Why is God going to act in your life this year in 2018? For the sake of his holy name. Why will God act in your family this year? For the sake of his holy name. Verse 23 what I do in your life Craig the nations will know that I'm the Lord. What I'm doing in your family Craig it's not for your family it's so that the city will know that i am the lord it's the people who know you will know that i am the lord what god is doing is for his name's sake paul says the same in ephesians 1 6 he said god chose us chose to save us in this way in other that in order that he might put us on display his glorious grace he would use me as a demonstration as a trophy of his grace that god would look on the mantle of heaven and see each of our lives for his glory. David says that the reason God continues to work in his life is for the glory of his name. You know that great passage we quote at every graveside funeral? We always quote it. We know it. it's called the Good Shepherd Psalm, but we very rarely pay attention to verse three. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, not my name's sake, for his name's sake. God does what he does in my life for his name. His glory. So what's the ultimate purpose God has for us now? bringing him glory. The ultimate purpose for your life, to bring him glory. It's why he created you. It's why he saved you. Paul would tell us that in everything we do, even the mundane things of life, whether we eat or drink, we should do all to the glory of God. You say, Craig, well, wait, that seems pretty self-centered on God's part, because I get this a lot. That seems pretty unloving of God, to, to, to say that he only does what he does for his own glory. Well, let me, let me just answer that a minute. Let me give you an ex- analogy. In order for life on earth to work, the earth has to rotate around the sun. If the sun was a person and loved the earth, the sun would insist that the, the sun remains the center of the earth's orbit because if the earth ever lost the sun, it would mean certain death for the earth. That's exactly how we are with God. Our world was created to revolve around God. The most loving thing God can do is make you revolve around him. The most loving thing he could ever do is to force and insist that you and your life revolves around him. Listen, if God wants, that's why, that's Psalm 1611. Look at the scripture says. He says, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If God wants us to have fullness of joy, if God wants you to have pleasures forevermore, he's gonna insist that your life builds around him as the center. The essence of the Father is love. And God wants us to share in that love, so he insists we put him at the center because he can't allow us to share in his love unless he's the center. One of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, he wrote a book that has to be one of the worst sermon, worst book titles of all time, but nonetheless, it's a great read. It's called hot tub religion. Basically, he's describing American religion. It's hot, it's, it's very hot, warm, floppy, and sensual, and it has no depth. But it's, it's called hot tub religion. Here's what he says. He says, if it is right for man to have the glory of God as his goal, can it be wrong for God to have the same goal? If a man can have no higher purpose than God's glory, how can God have a higher purpose? If it's wrong for a man to seek a lesser end than this, it would be wrong for God too. The reason it cannot be right for a man to live for himself as if he were God is because he is not God. However, it is not wrong for God to seek his own glory because he is God. See, the reason this is so hard for us to get, church, is we are born into life with a completely backwards mentality. We think we are the center of everything. We think we're the center of everything. Let me walk you through a little history of mankind. Can I do it just for a moment? Just, just... Bear with me a minute. I already explained to you a moment ago that the reason God created the world was to demonstrate his glory. The whole reason, baseline reason, for God's creation is to display his glory. So with the tip of his finger, he flung the continents and flung the galaxies and flung the solar systems into place. He made the stars and the clouds and the mountaintops and the seas and the atom and the cell. And every time he created something new, the angels he created are going, "Woo! that's amazing. I didn't know it could get better. Wow. 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 And it keeps getting better and better. Then after everything else is created, God created man to share in that glory. Now this creation was special because no other creation that the angels saw was created in his own image. But God created man in his own image. And then church, God did the unthinkable. Listen up, artist. Before creation was done, he handed the paintbrush to man and said, you paint the sinner." Creation wasn't completed yet and God wanted us to have a part in it. You say, Craig, why? Because he knows, God, what every person who's ever been in love knows. And every person who's ever been in love knows that it's only love when the person freely chooses you. And he wanted a creation centered in love. So he said, you paint the center, Adam, and we took the paintbrush and we painted in, not God, but we painted in ourselves. And here we begin to paint man as the center. And Adam said, I'm going to be the sinner. I'm going to be the boss. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to take first. I'm taking first place. I'm going to do what I want to do, not what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I desire. That's why I told you all the time, the word sin, if you want to know what sin is defined, take sin, take a small s, big I, and then small n. it's an I problem, that's all sin is. It's I'm gonna do it my way, I'm gonna be in charge, I'm gonna do it the way I desire. And every single child born into the world since then abides with that problem, thinking about his needs, thinking about her will. In fact, the two words I never had to teach my kids were no and mine. I don't know if y'all taught them that. I don't know who in the world taught my kids no and mine. But I didn't teach them that. I didn't teach them that. I didn't have to send them, y'all, I didn't have to send my kids to any rebellion camp. Eight weeks of learning how to rebel against your parents. I didn't have to teach him. Didn't anybody else have to teach your kids? I've I never, one moment had to set them up in Mosgrove Academy and tutor them in selfishness. Today, the topic is selfishness, Knox. Yet he's very selfish. They get those things naturally from their mom. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Our default setting in life is self-centeredness. Our default setting in life is selfishness. Let me prove it to you all. When you look at a picture on Facebook, pick up your toes, I'm gonna stomp on them in a minute. When you look at a picture on tip, Facebook, who's the first person you look at? There's 26 people in that picture. And the first person you look at is you. And if you look good, it's an awesome picture. And if everybody else looks bad and you look good, it's awesome. And if everybody else looks amazing and you look bad, it is horrible. I'm prove it to you. We do it. And then we think that that doesn't mirror into our Christian relationship. We think that somehow psyche doesn't move over into our relationship with God. We think like, if life is good for others and not you, God's not fair. But if life is good for you and not others, he's fair. Our default setting in life is so selfish. Let me summarize some of your prayers. Here's some of your prayers ginnny, ginnny, Give me, 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 then we say, God, are you listening? Like, I'm in the center here. Take care of me, God. Are you listening up there? Are you, do you understand I'm the center of the, all this whole issue? Like, make it work for me. And when he doesn't, we get really angry at him. And we're like, God, what's the problem? Don't you get it? Did somebody not give you the memo? What is wrong with you? This, this thing called life is about my glory, and it's about my happiness. When you give, like when the offering plate comes, you expect God to make it you worthwhile, right? So when the offering, bound comes, offering bucket comes by, you're like, <coughs> God, you <coughs> are you watching? Did you see that, God? Did you see what I put in? You owe me now. You better bless me, oh, creator of the universe. Did you see what I put in your golden plate? You better, you better do it, God. You better be grateful, God. You better be grateful to me. We live as if God exists to glorify us as the center of the universe. So we put bumper sticker on our cars that say God is my co-pilot as if it's our car to our destination and God will help me get where I want to go. No, 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 that is not the gospel. And we worship God as the best means to my best life now. And if God doesn't behave, we're like the nerve of that guy. And we walk around confused saying, God, how am I supposed to defend everyone that you're a good God? You, You want me to tell people you're a good God? I just don't understand you what are you up to? And God says, what am I up to? (laughs) I'm up to my glory. And you say, God, well, well, what about my glory? And he says, I'm not concerned about your glory. I actually want you to participate in mine. You say, well, Craig, I, I still feel like it's not loving for God to seek his own glory. Well, let's talk about how God pursued his own glory after we rejected him. Can I just show you real quick? How did God pursue his own glory after we rejected him? What do you do, church, when your prized creation hijacks the rest of your creation and makes it about them? What do you do when your prized creation hijacks the rest of all that you flung into existence and makes all that you flung into existence about them? What do you do? Well, you know what the governments in Jesus' day did? They had a very simple answer. You go in and you crush the rebel, don't you? When the Jews dared rebel against the Romans, what did the Romans do in 70 A.D.? They came in, they sacked the temple, they strung up thousands of men and women on crosses, they tore down their walls, they executed their children, then they built the triumphal Ark of Titus right in the middle of Rome to say, you know what, we crushed Israel, we will crush them again. They created songs and they sang songs for a hundred years of how they overtook Jerusalem. What did Jesus do when we flaunted his glory? Did he crush us? Did he set up an ark of triumph in heaven and have the angels sing songs about how he destroyed and decimated humanity? No, let me show you what Jesus did when we flaunted his glory. Philippians 2 and 6. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. What? He did what? He took the form of a servant? He took a stable? He was born in a stable, not a palace? He did what you and I would never do. He came to earth, and he took the form of a servant, and he died for our sins in our place. When he arrived on earth, church, he never played the God card. I would have played the God card all the time. I would have done it all the time. If I'd have been in a restaurant I was God, excuse me, can I get some good service over here with no tip? I am God, you know what I'm saying? Hey, excuse me, that is my seat. You're sitting in my seat. I am God, you know what I'm saying? He never did that. And instead of crushing the traitors, he offered himself on the cross to be crushed by the traitors. While they taunted him, he offered himself to be crushed by the people for their sin, for their treachery. Verse 8, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Most of us, church, would have a hard enough time dying for a friend. But he died here for his enemies as they spit in his face and they mocked him and they threw things at him. In other words, God said, you painted me out of the picture, humanity. You shoved me to the side. You rebelled against me. And so here's what I'll do. I'll show you. And he got on his war horse, and he comes down out of heaven, and with each mile he travels, he starts derobing his divinity. He starts getting rid of all his divine privilege. He starts getting rid of all that made him what he was. And the angels are looking perplexed. I thought you were angry, God. What in the world are you doing? I thought you were perplexed. And the angels are saying, what is he doing? And he was born into a stable to a virgin girl, and he took the form of a servant, and he died at the hands of traitors like you and I as a sacrifice for our sins, for your sins. Why? So we could share in the joys of his glory. His glory was not a selfish glory, church. His glory was a giving, sharing glory. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? To the glory of God the Father. That's what Christmas is about, God's glory. His glory was not a selfish glory. It was a saving glory. You can almost hear Paul saying, is he not worthy to receive glory? Is he not worthy to receive all your glory? folks? He's twice worthy of all the glory in your life. Once is your creator, second is your savior. He's worthy, twice worthy of all glory. He's creator and savior. His glory was not a selfish glory that crushed us when we rebelled. It was a glory that sacrificed himself to save us. How can we who have experienced that not rise up and offer our lives completely to him? How can we who've experienced that grace not offer our lives unto his glory? David gets that, doesn't he? He said, this whole thing's not about me. It's about God. Can I ask you a question on this last day of 2017? You wanna know about God's purpose for your life? Start with this question. How will it bring God's glory? How will it bring glory to our God? Listen to me, church. You will never understand your purpose until you get that. You'll never understand it. What if this sickness in your life is, what if it's not about you? What if this missed opportunity dad in your life right now is not about you? What if this difficult relationship, young lady, that you're in right now is not about you? What if this chapter of singleness, young man, is not about you? What if it's about giving God glory? What if it's about something so much bigger than you? Many of you are right now at the end of a new year at a place where you want God back in your life. You're getting into church. You realize something's been missing. Maybe some of you just had had kids. That happens around here. For a lot of people, they'll have kids and they'll come to church, and that's great. That's all awesome. I'm so glad you're here. We welcome you with open arms, but listen to me. I want to keep you from a mistake that I, in pastoring, Have seen people make almost every single weekend. Here's a mistake people make. They make the mistake that it's simply, I want God to be a part of my life for the new year. I need God to be happy in life. I need God in my life to have a good family. Of course, I don't want to go to hell. I need God. Listen to me. You don't come to God to make him a part of your life. You wake up to realize you were created for him. Your life revolves around him. He's not an addition to your life. He's the center of your life. You need to have what I call, and I'm going to call this new year, the Copernican revolution of the soul. That's what I'm going to start calling around DP. The Copernican revolution of the soul. You remember seventh grade science? You remember the seventh grade science? You remember Copernicus? Copernicus was the first guy who understood that the earth was not actually the center of the universe. Everybody else in science thought that earth was the center and everything revolved around it. And he, it, it, he realized, nope, the sun's actually the middle and we all in orbit around the sun. It was called the Copernican revolution of science. Well, listen, you need to have a Copernican revolution of the soul. What do you mean, Craig? I mean that you understand that you don't get God back in your life by putting him into orbit. You get God in your life by putting him in the center. And the reason your life is out of whack and the reason your life is out of orbit is because you... I've been trying to get God to go around you, and you need to understand your life only works when you go around God. It's a Copernican revolution of the soul. It's a Copernican revolution and understanding of your life that he alone is the center. So God has a purpose for you, but it's not about you, number two. God has a purpose for you. Ooh, I'm gonna preach you happy right here. And it's mostly about what he's doing in you. I did not say his purpose is what he's doing through you. I did not say what he's doing for you. I said what he's doing in you. God has a purpose for you, and it's mostly about what he's doing in you. God is more interested in your character than he is your comfort. You know why God's more interested in your character than your comfort? Why is he more into character than your comfort? Because this this life, after all, is really a warm-up act for eternity. We'll live here at most 100 years. We'll live there in eternity, 100 trillion years, and when we get done with 100 trillion years, that'll be day one. So why is God more interested in your character than he is your comfort? Because your character lasts forever. Your comfort is only temporary. He's more interested in making you holy rather than just happy. Why? Why is he more interested in your holiness than your happiness? Because your holiness is forever. Your happiness is fleeting. That's why he's interested. Now, how many times in verse 1 does David talk about his soul finding refuge in God? Be merciful, look at verse one. Oh, merciful to me, oh God, be merciful to me. From you, in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David's refuge church was not in the cave where he was hiding. That's a trick question, isn't it? He was in the cave of Abdullam trying to get away from Saul. He was hiding in a cave, but he says, my, the place of my protection is God's presence. The the place of my protection is not a cave. The place of my protection is in God. He said, my, the place of my refuge is not in the army that gathered around me. Saul's army was 10 times as big. His place of refuge was not in the fact that he was a, a bullseye with a slingshot. No, 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 no. It was not that. The slingshot's great, but the slingshot ain't going to help you when you got an army 10 times bigger than your army. The, the refuge for David wasn't in his innocence. In fact, he keeps crying out to God for per- mercy. He keeps saying, God, I need your mercy. I, I'm not crying out because I've been perfect. My refuge is not that I've lived a good life this 2017. My refuge is in the mercy of Almighty God. His mercy, his refuge was in God's steadfast love and grace. That's where he hid his life. That's the cave he went into. That's what he ran into. That's where he slept. Listen to me, church. God's purpose in all of this was to teach David to make his presence and mercy his refuge. And that's his purpose for you too. You listen to me. God's purpose for you is not so much something you do for him, but it's totally the way you learn to depend on him. That's the primary purpose God has for 2018. He's so preoccupied with getting you to learn how to depend. We serve a God who has no needs, church. He didn't create you with needs. So what we become in him is more important than what we do for him. What you do for him is not as important as what you become in him because he created you for delight, not duty. He created you for relationship, not action. He created you to become something in him. He created you to become a certain individual. I love how Isaiah says it. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I'm chosen. Why are we chosen, Craig? Why are we chosen? Why are you chosen? That you may do something? God says, no. Why are you chosen? That you may know and you may believe me, and you may understand that I am he. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other Savior. Listen to me. We're not chosen because God has something he needs us to do. We're chosen because something God wants us to understand and testify to. He wants us to know him. He wants us to understand him. He wants us to know that God is the only reliable Savior, that God is the only reliable refuge, that God is the only reliable cave that we can run to. God has no needs, so what we do for him is not, nearly as important as what we become in him so sometimes church listen to me I I may try to get through it without crying if I can praise the Lord it's been a difficult few weeks I'm not saying that uh, I'm going through um, sinful temptations right now no but this has been it's been hell in these last 13 days the hardest 13 days second 13 days of my life Uh, unbelievable unbelievable difficulty And in that time frame, let me tell you something what God will do. God will attack your place of refuge to show you that they aren't permanent. And you think he's done attacking your refuges? You think he's done attacking the thing where you found comfort and consolation? He's not. He will begin to attack your place of refuge. Like David, he will drive you from your own country even though you're innocent and he puts you in the wilderness just so you'll learn to have him as your home, him as your security because he can't bless you the way he wants to bless you until you become the person he wants you to become. So he will attack systematically every refuge in your life, every refuge you think you, have, every refuge and safe place you think you have, he will systematically start attacking them. He will come after them. He does it because he wants your identity to be in him and him alone. Like David, he'll put you into a cave with fiery beasts. They're circling outside of you and you're wondering how in the world. Every other time you've gotten up in your own strength and said, I'll fight, but he will cut your ankles and he'll put you on your back to where you look up to him and say, I can't fight anymore God. I don't know where to turn anymore. And he'll do it. Why? Because he systematically gets rid of our refuge in order for us to realize they're only temporary. They're only temporary church, all refuges fail. Do you hear me? Like David, the slingshot won't work on this one. He'll actually put you in the battle that re- resembles the battle you were in before, and he'll take away the weapon that he gave you in that battle to show you that it ain't about the weapon he gave you in one season. It's about the faithfulness of the God who provides in this season. And this is how God works, and you'll be flat on your back right finally where God wants you. And you'll be looking straight up to your God, and in the midst of job loss, in the midst of whatever it is, your own abilities. I don't know what your I don't know what your refuge has been. I don't know if it's your own abilities. I don't know if you said to yourself in your psyche, "Well, I always get back up again when I get knocked down. I get back up, and what doesn't kill me only makes me stronger." Well, let me tell you something. There will come a time, and I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I'll, I'll speak with compassion and tears in my eyes. I've been there where life will lock you down, and you can't get back up. You have no capacity in your own mind to get back up. You have no capacity in the strength of. Your body to get back up, and life will do that. It'll lock you down. Why? Because all refuges ultimately fail you. Stocks fail. They ultimately can't try to protect you in death. They can't take them with them. You. Maybe your refuge is just a way to cope. Maybe it's a bestie to complain to. Maybe it's a pleasure to dull the pain. Maybe it's food you eat. Maybe it's pornography you hook up. It fails. How I many you know when the moment what you numb yourself wears off, it only comes back stronger. The pain's worse. Listen, church, the refuge is the place you go to when your heart's scared. That's the refuge. And what God does is he attacks your places of refuge, and he reveals your inabilities because he wants his mercy to be your primary place of refuge. My wife and I, we are not not experts on this thing called parenting. We haven't hit the teenage years. And you know what? I've read a lot of books on parenting. You know what the things that bothers me so much about every book on parenting? It's good, you need to read them. I care about the technique of parenting and discipline. All, please understand me. I understand, believe wholeheartedly and all that. But you know what's really, really sad about all the books about parenting? All the books about parenting essentially come down to this. They give you a formula. If you do dot, 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 dot with your kid, they will turn out awesome. And you know what? You know what that You know what that negates? God was a pretty awesome parent, and he had two kids named Adam and Eve, and they did not turn out awesome. And I think you're going to outparent God is kind of a bad idea. People say parenting's hard. I'm like, I know the first experiment, and it ended in the older brother killing the younger. I understand. Okay. Cain killed Abel, first kids. You know what I'm saying? It's like if your kids are still living, you're doing a good job as a parent, okay? If they've not killed each other, you're better than Adam and Eve at this point, okay? think about that. You know what they really, they miss out. They get us to start thinking that our success and our kids has to do with our technique and what we've invested. And our refuge becomes how we behave in the home rather than the mercy of God. Listen, I believe in technique, but at the end of the day, I want to say, God, I don't know how to raise these three kids. And my, my refuge is not in the fact that we do things right and we discipline and lead right devotion. My refuge is in the mercy of God. My refuge is in the love of God. My refuge is in the steadfastness of God's love for my children. That, Lord, if they raised in the right way and they're raised in the house of the Lord, my refuge is not in the house. My refuge is not in what we do. My refuge is in your mercy, God. Your mercy. And once you get that, God has a purpose for you. It's about what he's doing in you. God's more interested in your comfort or character than your comfort. Once you get that, some of what you're experiencing in life will start making more sense. And God's word to some of you today is don't make that husband your refuge. Do not make that money your refuge. Do not make that security your refuge. Number three, and I end, come on, Casey. God has a purpose for you. And if you are surrendered to it, he will fulfill it. God has a purpose for you, and if you're surrendered to it, he will fulfill it. Look at David says in verse two, God will fulfill his purpose for who? For me. God will fulfill his purpose for me. That word fulfill is a Hebrew word called gamar. It means to bring to an end. It means to bring to completion. Gamar. God will bring to completion. His purpose in my life. David makes the same statement in Psalm 138 in verse 8. Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorites. He said, God will fulfill in Psalm 138, God will fulfill Gamar, his purpose for me. And then he adds, he will not forsake the work of his hands. In other words, church, he will finish what he starts. He will always be faithful to complete what he begins. I'm always telling my kids around the house, finish what you start, finish what you start, right? They get a coloring book and they start off on one coloring page, right? You could open up our coloring books in our homeschool closet and every page has like one part of the picture colored in, right? But it's never the whole picture. It's like, feel in and finish what you started and God says you know what I finish what I start that you people you my creation are the work of my hands and he always finishes what he starts he always finishes what he starts see God is a perfectionist you see and when it comes to his purposes he will not let anything come in the way of what he's doing in your life for this for David this means God will save him from the wicked plans of others that's what it means for David. Look at verse three, verse six. He said, you overrule all of their plans and their evil plans for good. You overrule all of their evil plans for good. God and his sovereignty can overrule what wrong things people have done to you. And he says, you also save us from our own stupid decisions. That's why David cried out for mercy. He made some stupid decisions. Mercy implies that David realizes he's made some mistakes. I think about where I'm at in life, church. I've known the Lord now since 2002. I'm 15 years following Jesus. I've been in ministry 11 going on 12. And when I look back over my life, seasons of life, Meredith and I did a lot of reflection this week and a lot of conversation. When I look back over my life and seasons of life and what we've done, ministry and where God's called us, you know, I don't look back at seasons of my life and I don't see a string of just wise, amazing decisions. We made the perfect decision there. You know, I say, I look back over my life and I see a lot of dumb decisions a lot of stupid, sometimes sinful decisions, sometimes completely random decisions. But here's the beauty of God. When you make the decision to put him at the center and you're no longer the center, he will rearrange the cosmos to make every situation you've ever faced still to work out for his good. And your good. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He, God weaves all of it for his purpose. All of it. Never forget, I years ago, I led a Bible study at a detention facility for a t- little over two years. Every Tuesday night at Silverdale Detention Facility, I um, I would lead a Bible study. My wife calls me a pack riot. I call this sentimental. I still have the attendance sheet from Tuesday, November 13, 2007. Tuesday, November 13, 2007, the attendance sheet the night that I was there and I took attendance of my guys, Pod D, Silverdale. See that number one guy, Brian Goforth? Let me tell you the story of Brian Goforth. Think about, he made a foolish decision. He was in prison. He made a really foolish decision. He went to prison. In prison, God led him to a person that was me, another guy named Jeremy, that came in and we started leading a Bible study. He gives his life to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ transforms him completely. He made a a really dumb decision. He came to me many weeks later. He said, Craig, 10 years ago, I made a bad decision. He said, he put me in jail and I deserve to be here. He said, I deserve to be here. He said, but you know what's so amazing? He said, I'm feeling God now calling as he's getting ready for his court date. We were going to help stand in. He said, I feel God's calling me into ministry, to serve and to the community that I grew up in Chattanooga. He said, I'm going to go back into the mess and I just want to share with him the gospel and the good news. And We were able to journey with that young man through that process as he got out of jail. It was amazing. But he came to him, i never forget week before his release, and he said you know what 10 years ago I made a decision it was stupid it was a dumb dumb decision he said with that dumbest decision of my life when you submit to God he created the consequence of the dumbest decision of my life to lead me to the greatest decision of my life to meet Jesus Christ and to have purpose and to be used for his glory and his plan God took the worst decision and turned it into his greatest discovery Craig are you saying it's okay to make bad decisions? No I'm saying that when you surrender to God's plans, he has a way of weaving everything, absolutely everything towards his purposes because not even you can mess up God's plans he has for you. Wow. Wow. Not even you can disqualify you from the purposes he has for you because grace remains mercy remains. The irony, church, it's only when you say, I don't want to be the center of the universe, that God reorders all things in the universe to fulfill his purpose for you. If you make yourself the center of the universe, nothing will work for you. But you make him the center of the universe, and the entire cosmos is realigned for God to fulfill his purposes for you. We've talked about this promise for the last few weeks. Let me give it to you now. In Romans eight twenty eight. he says, and we know. Everybody say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love God, not who love themselves, not who put themselves at the center of their, again, the irony, if you love yourself most, you want everything to work out good for you, it won't. But if you love God and you make him the center, he weaves all things, even the hard things, even the difficult things, into his beautiful, good tapestry of your life. He does it for those, verse 29, who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose, Craig? For those he for, New, He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son or the image of His Son. God's purpose is to make you like Jesus. God's purpose is to be more interested in your character than it is your comfort. God's interest in your life and purpose is to be more concerned with your holiness than your temporary happiness. And He's predestined that will happen, church. And those He's predestined, He said He's called. And those He's called, He's justified. And those He's justified, He's also glorified. What are you saying, Craig? God always finishes what He starts. He will see it through And once he puts you on that train called salvation, there is no getting off of it. He's taking you all the way to the station of glorification. He doesn't start and then throw you off. He doesn't start and get rid of you. He doesn't start and lose your GPS. You are on a train right now. And I know it's difficult. I'm with you. No, you feel like you're losing your mind. I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. But if you'll stay on the train, he's made the promise that he is taking you to the station of glorification. For those God called, he justified. Those he justified, he redeemed. Those he redeemed and justified, he said he also shall glorify. You are on a train when you've met Jesus, and you need to stay on the train. A destined destination called glorification. That's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. So we can be confident and say, Paul, like Paul in Philippians 1.6, he began the good work in us. He'll complete it. When you surrender to God's purpose, the promise of that, pr- promise from God becomes your refuge. And like David, you can lie down to sleep in the midst of fiery beasts. And you can rise up with joyful song in the midst of heartache. And out of the dark caves of your discouragement come songs of praise. And out of the dark dark caves of your pain come songs of praise. And out of the dark cave of your joblessness and your lost job come songs of joy. And out of your dark cave of singleness in this season come songs of joy. God has a purpose for you. He wants you to exalt His name in the earth and He wants you to to teach you to trust Him. Are you pursuing that goal? Sharing His glory and trusting Him more. That's a 2018 goal. Sharing His glory, trusting Him more in your situation right now it's okay to ask god to get you out of it it's okay i do that too the painful situation you're in right now and you've been asking god to take you out of it it's okay to do that but i'm going to ask you are you praying god glorify your name through me in this too are you praying help me know you more are you praying and you're painful i know it's painful i'm not making light of your pain i'm there with you i'm 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 not making light but in the painful situation Are you saying, God, through this time of want, it's okay to be honest, say, God, I don't wanna be in this cave, I'm I'm hurting, I don't wanna be in this cave, it's okay to say that, but are you saying, God, help me to get you to know you more in this cave? Are you saying, God, I I don't wanna be single, I'm so tired of being single, it's okay, you can tell him that, but are you saying, God, I want in this single season for your glory to be made known in my life? Students, what is your primary objective in college? Is it good grades? Lord, help us, there's got to be more than good grades. Is it a social circle? Those are great, but the one objective that must trump them all is bringing God's glory and spreading it on your campus and discovering what God has called to you to do in the specificity of spreading His glory. Athlete, what is your objective? Is it getting on a pro team? Awesome, that's amazing. want you to get on a pro team. But how would it change your interpretation of successes if you started living as an athlete for God's glory? Would it change how you interpret your torn ACL? Yeah, because it's not about you as an athlete. God can raise up any athlete. It's about spreading his glory. It's about spreading his glory. Business professional. Are you leveraging your talents and resources to bring God glory or are you pursuing your own kingdom? Is your prayer about how God can make your business work? you or how he will use your business to glorify his name in the earth mother as you raise your children is your primary goal raising kids that glorify God who will grow up and follow God anywhere he sends them to spread his glory through the earth or is it to raise good kids listen to me the success of any life is measured solely by whether it discovered purpose to glorify God I want to say it again the success of any life is measured solely by whether or not it discovered its purpose to glorify God. The Christian life really is simple. Receive God's glorious grace as a free gift. The gospel is that God created you for himself. He dragged, you, you, you turned away from him. He wanted to share himself with you. You rejected him. He came after you. Now you receive his grace. Then you spend the rest of your days spreading his glory by telling others about what Jesus has done for you. How he dragged you out of the burning building of sin and set your feet on the rock of safety and invite now other people to experience the same. It's the whole Christian life. That's it. That's all God's desiring. So some of you say, well, I've got resolutions for the new year. Please don't set New Year's resolutions. Please don't do it. New Year's resolutions... They, uh, they focus holistically on willpower and a to-do list. The pastor challenged me several years ago to do something called a rule of life. A rule of life is different from a to-do list and resolutions because a rule of life is about submitting to the spirit empowered practices and rhythms of life that the spirit uses us to change us. So think this week, introspective. I've done mine. The love of God, the center of my rule of life. Four areas, four quadrants. I'll share a lot of this this week on Facebook. You're going to see it. I'll give you four questions that a pastor challenged me on. Four questions that will set the tone for every area of your life in the new year. But these are rhythms. This is a rhythm of life to become. Don't say 2018, what do I need to get done? Say 2018, who do I want to become? And then work backwards with activities that are put in your schedule that enable you to become the person that you answered. Not what do I need to get done, who do I want to become? That's the question. That's what God's desiring. So for me, it's the area of prayer. One of the ways I'm seeking out this year is reading one book per two weeks, reading through the Psalms six times in 2018. I don't know what yours are. I'm gonna meet with a monthly therapist. I'm gonna meet with a counselor this year to talk about my own soul. I'm gonna do it every month. That's my personal commitment. Rest, a weekly Sabbath, playing basketball, day alone with God once a month, abstaining from social media for me five to seven days a month. It's gonna happen this next year. The area of relationships gathering with four pastors two times a month. I don't know what yours is, mine work. I wanna train five new preachers in this community. I wanna disciple 12 leaders, do writing projects. We're gonna move forward in the building in this new year. What is it? What is it, God? What rhythm of life is God setting before you to become the person God wants you to be? Let's go into this new year with great expectation. Amen, church? Let us be the the most glorious, God, grace-filled, glory-filled years of our lives. I declare of this community, you have anointed our steps, he said. You crowned the year with goodness. It drips with paths. your paths of abundance, the scripture said. I declare that for our lives. Can I pray for you? Father, I thank you for every life in this room. I thank you that we've gathered today under the name of Jesus Christ. And every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in this room and you say, Pastor Craig, I'm here today and I just want to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus in this new year. To end out 2017 and begin the new year, I want to say, Jesus, I surrender everything to you. I surrender all of my life to you. God, I I want to surrender all that I am. Wherever you've been wrong, wherever your heart's been straying from God, maybe you've lived in self-dependency or maybe your own selfish desires or will, but you're just ready to say, God, I want to surrender this last day. I want it to be me standing before the Savior and kneeling before the Savior and saying, Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness, but today I want to surrender my heart and my life afresh and anew. Maybe for some of you, that's a first-time salvation. Maybe, maybe for some of you, it's truly tr- stop trusting in your own ability to save you and trust in the sufficiency of our Savior, trust in the work that Jesus accomplished for you. Others of you, maybe you're a believer, but you've been living in self-will and you want the Lordship of Jesus to sacrifice or I should say crucify your own selfish desires and will. Submit your will to the Lordship of Jesus that He would be heir, Lord in every year of life, that you would start this year 2018 could be the best year of your life, but only if it's the best year of your life spiritually. The best year of your life in surrender. God's purpose and God's glory spreading to you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.